Are you ready? Hit the music! Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything to do with the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Cowie. I'm Nora Germain. I'm a drummer turned comedy singer, songwriter turned podcaster turned I don't know what. I am here and now. Apparently, also, we are both podcasters, of course. You're going to hear us chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free. Each and every week on scottcowie.com, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Audio Boom. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, tell an enemy, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Woo! Woo indeed, because this show is the 100th episode. Episode 100. Joining me now, of course, as you know, if you've not listened to the podcast before, you'll be unfamiliar, but you'll get familiar very soon. Nora Germain, how are we? I feel great. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you to all the listeners. And cheers to another 100, yes. baby. Nora, big thank you. You've joined me in this thing numerous times. And of course, Ron North, the legendary uh, engineer slash producer, who no doubt will feature at some point in this podcast. Coming up, we have Chris Jericho. We have Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols, and we have Derek Green from Sepultura. So there you go. Unbelievable amount of guests that we've got here. Uh, 100th episode. So we wanted to make it something very special. And also, Nora, guess what? Love Advice returns. I'm so happy. Uh, Oh, there's a thing for that. Okay, that's your love advice music. Great. Nora plays the violin every week, and she's genuinely one of the best violin players in the world. Um, and those of you that are not familiar with the podcast, you may be tuning in for the first time, because this is a big one. It's the 100th episode. Anyway, we're going to do the love advice, and we're also going to talk in detail. Nora, you're going to love this, right? Yeah. We're going to talk in detail about um, Johann Sebastian Bach. My favourite. Now, a lot of people out there, a lot of you ignorant people... Of... 1685 to 1750. Yes, and she's not got Wikipedia in front of her or anything. Johann Sebastian Bach. And some people are some people are hugely ignorant and just see him as a little German midget with 19 chins and a stupid wig. But in fact, he wrote some bloody good music and we're going to be talking about him. Nora's going to be playing some violin in the style of Johann Sebastian Bach. And we're also going to do the love advice. It's the most exciting piece of audio you will ever hear in your life, this podcast. That's true. Yeah, that's great. And right now we're going to cut to Y2G, Chris Jericho, the legend. Uh, I drove down to to meet him and, and podcast with him down in England a couple of months back. He's super cool. He was on before. Well, let's get right down to it. Y2G, Chris Jericho. <laughs> Okay, episode 100. Who would have thought? I'm joined now by returning guest, Chris Jericho. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm returning. 
returning. Oh, that's right. We did this before, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just opening up a Dayquil, uh, and it's like trying to get into Fort Knox sometimes with these um, these pills and stuff because I have a little bit of a, of a of a of a strained throat from so much singing. It's been let's see, six plus six plus three is fifteen plus two. Seventeen shows in uh, nineteen days, twenty days. So it's been quite a schedule. But uh, yeah, excited to be back here. By my show. fast math, that's a lot of shows. It's a lot of shows. But like I said, trying to open this damn pill thing, it's like, uh, it's literally like, hold on a second. I'm going to put the microphone down. I'm going to grab the end of a spoon. And as you, you talk, want the real behind the scenes yeah, this is, this story is, of a podcast. This is the inside scoop, pun intended. Yeah, exactly. Now, listen. Oh, um, this, I actually opened up the uh, Dayquil thing with the spoon. So there you go. That's how Chris Jericho opens up the Dayquil with a spoon. It's, it's all go here. Amazing. It's all, it's, it's Amazing rock and roll. information. Now, it's, um, I'm the one that's at fault um, for... Uh, having you be in Stuart Copeland's house, so how was it? Well, actually, that's honestly that's why we're doing this right now because I owe you a favor. You know, um, after we did the podcast, it was in Glasgow, maybe. Yeah, that's right. So then, uh, you know, and a lot of times you meet guys that do podcasts, and everyone has one now, which is cool. Some are better than others, and I enjoyed the interview that we did. And then after we were talking, and you said, "Oh, I've got this guy, this guy, this guy." However, it came up, and you said Stuart Copeland. And I was like, "Really." He goes, yeah, he'd be great on your show. I'm like, well, duh, but how do you ever do that? You gave me the the contact and within like two emails, I was in his house, which was great. And he was a great guest. And we were just talking before we went on the air here about how some people are so much easier to get than others. And some like even, I would never say low level because everyone, you know, has a, has a level of something, but some, some people that aren't very big stars are fucking impossible to get. And sometimes I just want to get them for my own personal thing. Mm-hmm. And other ones like Stuart, I mean, to some people, doesn't mean anything, but to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, one of the greatest drummers of all time, legit stadium yep. mm-hmm. musician, and two emails, I was I was in his place. So it just you just never know how you're going to get to people and how you're not. And, and I've I experienced that all the time on my podcast, which just celebrated its 200th episode. And some people- Congratulations. Just, thank you. And some, some guys you get, just easy, and other ones- you're still waiting on it. It's like, how how hard does it get? Like, one of the guys was Billy Zapka. I don't even know if you know who that is. He was like in the 80s. He was the bad guy in all the teen movies. He was like, uh, Sweep the Leg Johnny in um, Karate Kid. He was the bad guy in Back to School. He was the bad guy in Just One of the Boys. He was always the bad guy. And I thought it'd be kind of a cool, quirky guest. You would think this was freaking Tom Hanks about how it's, well, I can't make it here. I'll reschedule it here. I'll do this here. I'll do that there. And finally, I'm like, you know what, dude? Don't worry about it. Like it's not gonna get any ratings, but it would be thing. I thought it'd be funny to have you. So, anyways, you know, you got to just deal with all the different quirkiness of celebrities. I was trying to. I've been dying to talk about this in my podcast, and I was trying to speak to somebody from this is from that world, and this is as close as I'm gonna get. It's the wrestling world, UFC. I don't know if you know the fight. No doubt you heard about it. Did you see the Ronda Rousey fight? I did not. I obviously heard about. it. I watched it. Actually, we were over here. That's how long we've been over. I think we we're in Vienna. Uh, that day so we watched it um clips of it on video but i didn't actually see the whole thing but i saw the most important part um 12 and 0 and then she could beat in her 13th fight people are saying that she's potentially uh, distracted with other things as someone that's involved in many different projects um none of your projects seem to suffer from from being involved in different things you know um do you think that might have played a part or do you know do you bother what do you think well i'm not a real fighter you know, there's the difference. Um, my my form of, of athleticism is is highly based in entertainment and storytelling. So, 
I can just comment on it the same way that you you can as a fan. But I will say this. Anytime somebody gets distracted from something like that and takes their eye off the ball, you do suffer. And if you're a musician and you're doing something else or you're a wrestler, you do something else, something is always going to, I don't know if suffer is the right word, but you're going to have to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul for lack of a better description. So, yeah, I do think the fact that she's become Hollywood's darling might have affected her. I do think the fact that she maybe started believing her her own hype a bit. You know, you could even tell by how she was talking about the fight, about how, you know, after this fight, you know, people are getting sick of me, so I'm going to win this fight and just go away for a while. And it's like maybe underestimating this girl whose only focus was to beat up Ronda Rousey. And that's what happened. I'm sure the same thing happened with Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson back in 89 or 90 or whatever it was. You know, you come in there kind of believing your own hype, and suddenly there's always somebody hungrier and there's always somebody better. And from what I understand from some of the people that I know that are really into it is that Holly's game plan, her strategy, her coaching, everything was focused on beating Ronda Rousey's style. And she was like kind of genetically created to, um, you know, counteract everything that Ronda Rousey did. So that's what happened. And, and, and will it ruin her? I don't think so, but I think they definitely put a chink in the armor and she's going to have to, um, you know, come back really hard. And, and, and if she, you know, if she loses another fight, it could affect her in Hollywood too, because her gimmick is kind of, she's the unbeatable woman, you know, and now she just got her ass knocked out. If it happens again, who knows what might happen? So she's in a rough position right now. I think if she loses that rematch, I think that, I mean, there's, there's got to be, I mean, the serious ask, question's getting asked already. If she loses the rematch? I, I, I think if she does, yeah, I think yeah, that's right. going to really, 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 really hurt things. Um, she was involved earlier this year in, in WWE. Now, we didn't get a, ch- a chance to, to cover much wrestling. Uh, we didn't get much chance to talk wrestling last time. Okay, Chris. Um, Kira Hunter. Thanks to Kira for emailing in. Um, she's just given us one name, and I'll, I'll say this name, and you just run with it. Vince McMahon. That's such a broad, broad question. You know, it's like, uh, make that funny face you make, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, I've had such a long relationship with Vince and, um, you know, he's a very complex guy. He's a, he's a great guy, very, um, big hearted guy, believe it or not. And actually, uh, I said this about Kerry King is like, don't tell anybody. He's actually a very sweet guy. But he's also a boss. He's a stern boss. And he's also in charge of a multi-billion dollar company. So he can't always be nice. And I, I respect the fact that, that that he can't always be nice. There has to be some give and take. And you're not going to walk all over Vince McMahon in any way, shape, or form, um, even if you're his friend. And he has no problem you know, jumping the gap between friend and boss. And I respect that. And also, too, it takes a long time to gain Vince's respect. But once you gain it, you've got it for good. And that's when you can really kind of work together uh, on a face-to-face, peer-to-peer basis because there's so many yes-men in that company uh, and people will just do what they're told. So if you find someone that's not going to necessarily do what they're told, but not from a rebellion standpoint, but from a I-think-my-idea-is-better standpoint, he'll always listen. And I know in my case... Seven times out of 10, you know, he'll, he'll go with my gut feeling and my instinct. Three times out of 10, there's no debating, do what I tell you because I'm the boss. 
And you know, there, there, you, there's never any issue or um, question over who your boss is. Whereas in WCW, for example, when I worked there, you never really knew for sure. WWE, since the moment I walked through the doors, you know, August 9th, 1999, up until today, he's been my boss in, in the wrestling business and will be my only boss in the wrestling business until until I'm finished doing this. So, you know, th there's a lot of things that led to us having this great respect for each other, but it's a long relationship too, almost 16 years. So, and being one of his most loyal employees, I've never worked anywhere else, never even done a, you know, on a, a, a signing appearance at a, at a show since I started working for Vince. And um, also the fact that I deliver, you know, as a performer and as a professional. Um, so, yeah, I've earned that respect from him and, and I've got it. It's, it's a great relationship. You're doing some um, presenting on the show Tough Enough this year. What kind of training did you have for that? If any, were you kind of thrown at the deep end or... or Obviously, your skill set on the mic, did that help? Or? Well, I've hosted a lot of shows before. I hosted a show in 2007 called Redemption Song for the Fuse Network in the States. I hosted Robot Combat League for Sci-Fi. I hosted Downfall, a game show that was in primetime at ABC. And there's been other ones too, but those are, those are the ones that pop into my head. So um, I had that experience of hosting a show. Now, hosting a show with Vince kind of calling the shots is a different story because he was there for every show. And at the start, he was very much say every single word that I'm telling you to say, which is hard. And then once we kind of got rolling, he kind of pulled back the reins a bit and just let me be myself. And that was kind of a work in progress, that show, because... It had never really been done before, a show that was half live show, half recorded kind of reality. Excuse me. So we were we were figuring it out as we went along, how exactly do we do this? And I think episodes five through 10 were a million times better than episodes one through five because once again, it didn't matter how much experience you had doing other hosting for me. This is a show that had never existed before. So you can't go back and watch other shows and see how it was done. You basically have to just learn it on the fly. You know, we had that with the first Elimination Chamber match, which was this big giant structure that they created back in 2002, 2003. And it was the first one of its kind. So you couldn't go back and watch other Elimination Chamber matches to see how other guys did it because there, there wasn't one. So you just kind of had to make it up as you went along. And the first one... I mean, the, the they're probably at number twenty right now. I mean, you know, number twenty is a million times better than number one because number one we didn't really know what we were doing, and it's the same thing with Tough Enough. So uh, it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun, but it was also, like I said, kind of figuring out as we went along. But working with Vince behind the scenes on that in the production meetings every 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 Monday was a whole other experience. I'd never done that before, and we had a lot of great uh, suggestions and and a lot of. Uh, he's a good guy to work with as far as trying to put together ideas. And I got to see that side of it as well. It must be really, I can't imagine um, being live on TV doing this kind of thing, doing the presenting thing. It must be really nerve wracking at any point in, in any of the projects you're involved in. Do you get nervous at all, be it before uh, a gig with Fozzie, before a, a wrestling show, before presenting Tough Enough? Is there ever any nerves that come into I get play? nervous before every show that I do, before anything that I do professionally. Every podcast that I do, I always feel a little bit like, I hope this goes good. But that, that's the way it should be. If you ever don't, feel nervous about something that you're doing 
then you should probably stop doing it because you should always have that. And this isn't nervous like, oh my God, I can't do it. It's nervous like, I wonder how it's going to go and, and I wonder what kind of a, you know, what kind of a crowd is it going to be? Is it going to be a live crowd? Is it going to be loud? Is it going to be a shitty crowd? Is this guest going to be a good guest? Is it going to be, you know, no matter what it is that I'm doing, I always have that little, that little uh, tugging in my stomach where it's like, I hope this goes good. And a lot of times, like I will go, especially for my podcast, one of my favorite things to do is interview someone that I don't even really know. Like, I did, um, gosh, it feels like two years ago now, but at the beginning of this tour, which was three weeks ago, I did Scroobius Pips podcast to promote the Fozzie tour. I don't know anything about Scroobius. I just knew that he had a podcast because via Twitter, you should do Scroobius and blah, blah, blah. So when his name came up, I said, okay, I'll go do it. And we had a, a great conversation. And I was in London and I start getting antsy when I'm not working and I wanted to do a podcast in London. I wanted to get somebody live from London. And I said, well, maybe I'll see if Scroobius is around. And he was. He came down to our show. This is a couple of weeks later. We had a show at the Islington Academy last week. And Scroobius came down. And I didn't, I don't know anything. I know, I know, okay, so I do my due diligence. I go on Wikipedia. I ask a couple of guys that I know, find out a few things, but it's not a lot. I know three things. He's a rapper, he's a spoken word guy, he acts. And when he got hundred thousand Twitter followers, he took he took he put out an open invitation to take them all out for a beer. So, um, do you know who Scroobius Pip? He had the name. Okay, so had him do the show, and we had a great you know hour long conversation. Because if you and I meet each other in a bar, and you know, hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Blah blah blah. And let's say we get into a good conversation. There's no questions. There's no Wikipedia page. I'm looking each other up. It's just two dudes that meet each other in a bar. Hey, I like your hat. Well, whatever, whatever. And then we start talking. That's what a real conversation is. And that's what I do on my podcast. It's not an interview. If it turns into an interview, I fucking hate it. It has to be a conversation. That's why I never have questions. And sometimes I should have had questions, but I don't care. I don't want questions. You know, when I have William Shatner on my podcast for the two times now, I don't need a list of questions to talk to William Shatner. I've been a fan of his for 40 years. Also, I know what it's like to get asked the same things. He probably doesn't really want to talk about Star Trek, and neither do I. You know, he probably doesn't want to talk about, you know, whatever, like uh, anything that you would think that somebody talks about all the time with him. So tell us about uh, what was it like working with Klingons? He's probably like, fuck off. You just talk, and you get an interesting person and somebody who can follow a conversation. And sometimes I always have a blank piece of paper with me to take notes during the show in case somebody says something that I want to go back to. Mm -hmm. I don't forget it. But other than that, it's just a conversation. I start it 60 minutes later. If it goes that long, and it's still a vibrant conversation. I stop it. There you go. And as a result, my podcast has done really well. Like we mentioned Stuart Copeland. I know enough about Stuart. And I have a, you know, my first concert I ever went to was the police in 1983. And he used to wear really short, funny shorts if I needed a joke. And that's all I had. And the rest just, and you know, a guy like him, you don't have to say anything. Just give him the microphone. He'll talk for 60 minutes, you know? And that's my favorite thing about doing a podcast. And it's the same with wrestling or music or anything that I do. Let's just see where the, where the night takes us. Cause you never know. And if you close yourself off to that, you might miss a whole treasure trove of great material because you're so focused on question one, question two, question three, song one, song two, song three, uh, high spot one, high spot two, high spot three. Have that in the back of your head, but keep it open to allow the real life to come in. 
you mentioned Stuart Copeland and you were in his house. Now, I remember emailing you at the time and saying, I really hope you get to go to his house because he's got an amazing drum set up. He's an amazing yeah, It was his studio. Up. His studio, right. yeah. So what was it like? Well, it was great. I mean, like you said, it was... It was um... I'm not, I don't even know if it was his house. I don't know. They just gave me an address and said, show up here. And I went there and it was this big giant studio. And inside he had like all of these types of instruments, things I'd never heard of before, didgeridoos and fagots. We were talking about a fagot. It's a fagot. And, um, you know, Indian tribal drums and, you know, just all of this type of stuff, timpanis and just tablas, Indian drums. And yeah, I just kind of walk in there and it's like, this is exactly what I would expect Stuart Cope. He said he has the world's most extensive extensive collection of cheap instruments, you know? And uh, I mean, did you go to his studio or did you do it on the phone? I did get a chance to be, we did a Skype thing and gotcha. it's, you know, all in the background and he was kind of showing me around and after the interview, he took the laptop around and he was kind of showing me. Yeah. And, um, I plan on being there one day, of course. But, yeah, um, well, I mean, it, like I said, I mean, that's one of my uh, things I love doing with the show too is that um you know having the portable rig i have the exact same one that you have although i'm wondering what is this thing you have sticking out of the side here there's a one headphone, cord headphones oh, for headphones this. in case you need them gotcha um the best thing was is that i used to put on headphones in the studio i have a studio in beverly hills and the first time shatner came in i put the headphones on i go there's the headphones billy goes why do i need headphones i can hear you we're talking to each other and i'm like that's a good point why do we need headphones it's not like there's like some like fuck it um but going to people's houses i mean i carry my rig in a big pillowcase because it's easy to cart it around in a pillowcase. <laughs> and um, I wish I would, I always say like, I wish I would have got somebody to, to every person sign up, sign it. Because yeah. I've been to like Paul Stanley's house, Gene Simmons house, Cheech Marin's house, Kevin Smith, um, you know, Hulk Hogan, uh, Stuart Copeland, like all these great slash. Because a lot of people don't want to leave their house and I don't blame them. Like today, it's like, just come, come to me. Like I'll be happy to do it. But I don't want to go to the studio or whatever. Yeah. And it's just so cool to be, you know, I'll just come to the house. All right, Paul Stanley, I'll come to your house. No that's problem. not a bad job. Yeah, that's you know, not a bad job. it's not a bad job. So that's, I, I really enjoy that element of it too, is that you never know what your, um, your atmosphere is going to be. And that adds a lot to it as well. Like I did a podcast, this guy called Bob Gruen. He's, you never see that John Lennon, New York City photo. Yep. Yeah, he mm -hmm. took it. He was John's mm -hmm. photographer, best friend, and, you know, Kiss, Dressed to Kill album cover, Stones, you know, some girls, like you name it. In the 70s, he was the guy. And just to go into his studio in New York City, and the first thing you see is this big giant picture of John Lennon. He's got like eight pairs of sunglasses on, which is a very famous photo. And he's got that up on the wall. And to Bob, my favorite photographer, you know, fuck off, John Lennon. It's like, wow, there's my start. Mm -hmm. Now, had I written a bunch of questions, that wouldn't have been one of them because I don't know what I'm going to see when I go into mm -hmm. his house. You know, Paul Stanley, we go to his man cave. It's like going to some kid's bedroom when you're 15 <laughs> years old. It's all like black velvet and big speakers and, you know, black light. And it's like, here's how we start the show. Mm -hmm. And I love that element of it too, the unknown of mm -hmm. I don't know how this is going to go like Stewart's. I didn't know what I was going. Mm -hmm. I didn't know his studio would have all this cool stuff in it. Yeah. There's your first 10 minutes right there. Absolutely. You know? When I did Lemmy, I went to his house and he was um, looking at guitars online. So I plugged in all my shit and I just didn't even tell him your story. I just pressed record and set the mic. I'm like, what are you looking at? I'm looking at bass guitars and there's a 67 Rickenbacker. I loved it because Paul McCartney had one. And there's the start of our conversation. Ice broken. We're off to the races. Who's I left to talk to then? I'll go. I'll do mine first, right? 
Jimmy Page. I want to talk to him. Yeah, it's funny because I just hosted the Classic Rock Awards um, at the London Roundhouse. I think I've seen that on Twitter. Yeah, and Jimmy was there and uh, Brian May as well. And I've always been more of a queen guy. So, you know, Brian and I actually tried, you know, you know how it is. You try and get a publicist and send some emails. And of course, sometimes they respond, sometimes they don't. But, you know, yeah, Jimmy, I mean, I mean, duh, right? Like anybody of that level. To me, you know, I, I just want to talk to people that I find interesting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, obviously, okay, Paul McCartney, they're yeah, great. Ringo Starr, great. Mick, Keith, you know, Elton, freaking Page, Brian May, like... But, you know, sometimes, like, I'll think, you know, Billy Zavko, like I said, like, probably most people don't know who this guy is, but I don't care. Like, I think there'd be some great stories from him to hear about, you know, what it was like filming Karate Kid or whatever. So if someone to me is interesting, I always want to have them on the show. And another thing I like doing, too, is talking to people about stuff that they never get to talk about. I had um, a, big, a big wrestler right now called Dean Ambrose, and he did my show couple episodes just talking about his life and then one day we were at the arena talking about something came up about a bigfoot and he's like oh bigfoot i'm like wait you like bigfoot he's like, oh, i love it i'm like dude we have to do a podcast because i have a lot of supernatural guys in my show so we had a whole hour of paranormal dean ambrose and he loved it like he got to talk about like ghosts and you know bigfoot and all this crazy weird shit possession and fans get a chance to hear another side of somebody as well so I like that element of it as well. But I, I think probably if you had to ask me, you know, name your two biggest that you have to get or you want to get. I mean, it couldn't even answer that, but the pump it in my head would be Keith Richards and, and Paul McCartney from Rock and Roll. Absolutely. If Paul you McCartney know? would be a flaming 20 part, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I, would, I could talk to him about, honestly, I could sit for hours and talk about Hamburg alone because I'm fascinated by that period of time. About you know, what? Hamburg, you know, oh, yeah, in yeah, Hamburg yeah. prior to. But that's what I mean. Like, you know, I had Bruce Dickinson on. He talked about World War One airplanes for about twenty minutes, and people were going, "Oh, geez, you must have hated that." You must. I was like, "No, I loved it." Because you know why? Because Bruce was into it. Because mm -hmm. he had done eighteen interviews that day. You know, he did a press day. And so we seen him talking about Iron Maiden, new album. He had cancer. Okay, wrote an eighteen-minute song. That's great, but. How many people were like, you know, he was like, he said, well, because, you know, talking about World War One. but well, what do you mean World War One? Tell me about it. And then suddenly we're talking about the Hindenburg. And and to me, it's like something he didn't get to talk about on anyone else's show and he's talking about on mine. That's what I want. And with Paul, just set up the mic. I don't care if he's talking about the fucking lunch he had down the street today. You want to talk an hour about that? I'm fine with it. But you didn't even talk about the Beatles. You know what? I don't care. Mm -hmm. Because he'll always remember my show mm -hmm. as the one where he got to talk about how he ate, you know, a lovely scotch egg or whatever. And I have a, a, um, a lot of feedback from people who were like, this was my favorite interview I've ever done because it's never the normal interview because I know what it's like to get asked the same questions over and over and over again. So you got this band, Fozzy. Uh, tell me about it. Are you kidding me? That's how you're going to open it up? Automatically, you shut down. Mm -hmm. You're done. You know, well, there's been some of this. You've, you've met so many interesting characters over the years, you not know, just um, doing the, the podcast thing. But I would imagine a lot of people probably don't know this. But I watched a documentary the other day on Mike Tyson, and one of the clips that just randomly popped up was him with yourself. Really? You know, a um, documentary of Mike Tyson? It was just like it was on YouTube, and they're put together like a snippets of him, everything oh, he'd done. So it was an official thing. It was, it was something, whether it was or it wasn't, it was on YouTube. So it's difficult to tell these days what network it right, might have been right. on, you know, because it was quite well done. He's he's on my list too, like on my top five list to right. get on my show. So you Tyson, had yeah. a little bit of 
We had a great time. With him. Yeah, it was awesome. He, uh, I was like this, like in, in 2008, 2009, I was like the super hated bad guy where people like, it wasn't just like people legitimately like were attacking me on the streets, like for real. And um, that must have been great, right? Well, it was great, but it it wasn't great when you have people actually attacking you and you're fighting like a mob of unruly people and then the cops come after you to arrest you. Really? Yeah, it was that bad. In Victoria, BC, as a matter of fact, it was a real bad one. You can find the clip online of people filming it as I'm fighting people that are trying to, you know, kick in my car because I insulted Canada, you know, just weird stuff. But, um, So um, the the idea was that they were kept trying to kick me off raw, storyline wise. But I kept getting out of it. And people were like, just get rid of this guy already. So um, and we were doing it was like Siren Live for a couple of years. We would have a guest host every week. You know, Ozzy was one, Dennis Miller, uh, Shaq, Bob Barker, like all these amazing people. And and one week it was Tyson, who's a big wrestling fan, like big wrestling fan. And a great guy, super nice. So the idea of the show was that DX, who is Shawn Michaels and Triple H, the big guys on the show, were going to have a match against me. And finally, you know, whoever it worked out that, you know, they would have a match against me and a partner of my choice. And if they can beat me, I'm kicked off raw for good. And I'm like, all right, well, I've got somebody. And it turned out that it was Mike Tyson, which was great. And this was Mike's, Mike had done some stuff in the WWE as a referee and stuff, but this was his first match. And his only match, I think. And um, so it was great. So he shows up and we do this backstage vignette where he's I've got the gloves on, you know, the the, the punching gloves. Yeah, yeah. And he's like warming up. And first of all, I put them on backwards by mistake. And he's just he just thought that was so funny. You put them on backwards. You put them on backwards. <laughs> and I was like, all right. All right. Tough guy. All right. I put him on backwards. I've never boxed. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I put him on properly. And dude, he's hitting me. And this is the overweight Tyson. He's lost a lot of weight now. But this is like the overweight, slow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Slow Tyson. Dude, he was warming up, hitting me so hard that my hands, and I got big arms and big shoulders, but my my hands were going back behind my head on his punching bag warm-ups. <laughs> like, like super, like my shoulder was hurting from the velocity of how hard he was punching. So then um, the, the idea of the match was that we would have the match and then um, Tyson would turn on me. He takes off his shirt and he's wearing a DX shirt underneath, right? And I'm looking at that Shawn Michaels and Triple H and I'm like, you see who's behind me? He's going to kick your ass and I'm going to... And he's taking his shirt off behind me and everyone's cheering. And I turn around and I see that, uh-oh, Tyson's got a DX shirt on. And so I'm like, Hey man, calm down, calm down. So when we were going through rehearsals for it, the idea is he, he knocks me out. And they're trying all these different ways. It's like, well, he could punch you where if he punches you, like gives you an uppercut, he could stop the uppercut by his elbow, you know, like whatever and all this. I'm like, why Like, why don't we just film it from behind? Like when Mike punched Zach Galifianakis in Hangover and, you know, just punch from behind and, and it's going to look like he punched me no matter what and Mike will come across and I go down. All right, so that's what we'll do. So um, I'm standing there, and the idea was when I put my hands up, that was his cue to hit me. So I turn around, and Tyson's, this is in Minneapolis. People are going crazy, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, stop time. I am the craziest person in the world right now because I'm going to stand here, 
and let Iron Mike Tyson take a swing at me. And I don't know, maybe he's seeing the double. Maybe he misses. Maybe he doesn't like me. Maybe he's drunk. I don't know. He could knock my fucking head off. He's Mike Tyson. And I knew how hard he could punch because I'd felt it about 20 minutes before. And I was just like, all right, here we go. And I put my hands up like this. And he came around. You ever heard like those like stories where like someone punched you and you felt the wind blow by? That's how fast he came by. And it felt like a around my jaw. And I tr- I, I turned my head as he punched me like this. And I went down like, you know, when someone gets knocked out, like they always look like a dead bug. Like there's a weird kind of a, like their arms are bent and, and in wrestling, you take a flat. But I didn't. I went down like I just got knocked out like this weird position. And everyone thought that he had killed me because he came. He, he touched me. He came so close precision and so fast that you could not tell. If you watch it, you, you, you can pause it, pause, 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 frame by frame. You can't tell that he didn't hit me. And dude, I went straight down and the ref kept asking me, if, if, are you all right? And I was like, fuck it, I'm not going to answer. If he thinks I'm really knocked out and everyone in the back thinks I'm knocked out, I'm knocked out. And then he stood over me and crotch shot me and suck it and bombs got off. And um, it was a cool experience, man. And, and like I said, he came so close, but obviously perfect control. And anybody who says anything about Mike Tyson, this, Mike, T- excuse me, Mike Tyson, this, Mike Tyson, that. All I can say is that you would have to be completely freaking insane to get in the ring with that guy in any stage of his career, especially when he was in his 20s. But even now, I don't know if he's 50, whatever, I would not, no way, no, 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 no. And you can laugh all you want and say what you want. Anyone listening, trust me, Mike Tyson would kill anybody right now listening. (laughs) But it was a cool story. And that's why I want to have him on my show. He owes me. He turned on me. That was a great story, but because you had me go, because oh, that's where you're gonna go. It's but, funny. A couple of years later, we uh, he got into the WWE Hall of Fame, and we did a press conference after, and just happened that me and him and I were on the same one, and, and we actually uh, were on the press conference, and, and you know, I forgive you for turning on me, Mike, and shook hands. You know, you forgiven. You know, it was just kind of funny though how it was like we just happened to be in this press conference after he knocked me out, but yeah, it was pretty crazy, man. I can remember watching on and off that period of time where you were as you. You pointed out the the bad guy or whatever way you want to put it. This you know the guy was really yeah. kind of hated. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now uh, what I, I like to be watching that and what I'd like to be watching some guys is that uh, I I kind of believe it. I know I'm watching a performance, but I believe what you're saying because <laughs> yeah. you're really convincing. I'm actually at the time. Obviously, I've met you and I know that you're a very nice guy. But at the time, I'm I'm unfortunately he can't be a nice guy. Right. I'm totally convinced. Um, CM Punk's another one. I believe what he's saying, right? right? I, when I watch it, I know I'm watching a performance, but I find it very difficult to not think that he's, he's a dick, right? But there's some guys that I, I know I'm watching wrestling. Well, and that's the thing. You have to take it to a different place. You have to commit to it. And I left the WWE in 2005, kind of got burned out and just was feeling myself, you know, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And one of the things I did was I went and studied acting. And not with the aspirations to become a movie star, but I just wanted to learn the craft. Same thing when I did Dancing with the Stars. I wanted to learn the art of dancing and get respect for it. And I learned uh, method acting and how you drop into a character where you become that character. So that's kind of why that happened because I wasn't fucking around. Like when I went out there, when I said I was the best in the world at what I do, on certain nights, I was the best in the world. 
you know, literally. Like there was nobody that could touch me. Japan, Mexico, Germany, anybody in this company or any other company, I am the best. And I believed it because I knew it was true. And that was that was one of the reasons why I could fall into this character and be this character. Um to the point where, like you said, people were like, okay, this isn't real. It's, it's a show, but that guy's real. That guy's really a jerk. And no Chris Jericho merchandise. I refuse to allow them to have any. Because why do I want somebody wearing my shirt if I'm supposed to be a bad guy? Um, okay, Chris, you have a photo shoot with the magazine today. No. What do you mean no? Well, you, they want to put you on the cover of the magazine. I don't want to be on the cover of the magazine. Why? Why would I? If I'm I'm Chris Jericho, the the the, the asshole here, I don't want to I don't want to be in any of your magazines. I don't want to be in your website either. So don't ask me for interviews. And people were like, you know, Jericho's hard to deal with. But my boss was like, well, that's that's why you hate him. And you know, merchandise sales and stuff. I'm not going to make half as much money off T-shirts as I am off main eventing pay-per-views. Mm-hmm. As the guy that everybody wants to see get his ass kicked. Uh, whenever I went to the vicinity of the arena. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I wouldn't sign autographs. I wouldn't take pictures. If you're in my workplace, you have to deal with whatever it is that you get. I remember Madison Square Garden, you have to park underneath uh, in a parking garage and take the elevator up to the street and walk across the street to the garden. That's just the way it is. You don't park in Madison Square Garden. Nobody does. First time I ever went there, I pulled up there and the one cop guard was like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm with the WM. Uh, where do I park? He goes, you work in Madison Square Garden? I said, yeah. Where do I park? He goes, listen. He goes, Mick Jagger doesn't even park in Madison Square Garden. What chance do you have? <laughs> I was like, okay, across the street, buddy. So I get in the elevator with this guy and his son. And the and the and this and the guy's, hey Jericho, can you sign this for my for my son? I had my son was about the same age at the time. I'm like, fuck, I can't sign. I can't do it. Because, you know, three hours from now when I'm main eventing Madison Square Garden and people are booing me, I don't need this guy going. Hey, you know, he's really a nice guy. Mm. I need this guy going over the top. Yeah, you know, he is an asshole. He wouldn't sign. Dude, I just look straight ahead. I remember we've seen the numbers. Eight, seven, six, five. You're not going to sign for him? Four, three. You're not even going to look at me? Two. You know, you're a real asshole, Jericho. My son's right here. You're not even going to look at me? Look at me. And I'm just please let this elevator door open before this guy hits me. And the door opened. I just walked straight out. And he was just there, you know, you're an asshole. And the kid was like looking like he was going to cry. I just felt so bad. But I had to do it. I had to commit. I couldn't sign for him, you know. And that's the price you have to pay. Another guy, I'm, I'm, I've been wanting to ask you for a while about this guy, Paul Heyman. Same thing. When he's in the mic, I, I, I believe what he's saying. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the other guys, like I said, I don't, I don't want to name names and all that kind of stuff. But... um. I believe what he's saying. And what did you, if anything, what do you think you've learned from him over the years? From, from him? From him. Um, I mean, Paulie was really more instrumental in my earlier years, you know, in, in ECW. I was there in 95. <laughs> so that's where I kind of um, got to know him. He gave me confidence that I could be somebody in, in the States. And then when he came to WWE, just I think probably just confidence more than anything. You know, believe in yourself and and you know you can do this. And and the system is out to get you, so don't let it. You know, and he's right. But as far as actual character advice and stuff like that, I think more like I said, when you have confidence, you can do anything and get anything over and make anything good. Mm-hmm. 
and that's kind of didn't learn it completely from paulie but the 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 kernel of that came from him Mm -hmm. very good motivator even when i was only making you know 250 bucks a night in ecw and that's all i I never made more than that ever he was he was worth way more than that in uh in motivation and confidence he was always very much you know you are one of the best performers in the world today that sort of a thing whether he meant it or not didn't matter he made you believe it so i think i think for as a motivator paulie was one of the best that i've ever worked for wow um, do the guys when you go to the, when you perform at the shows the, the younger guys coming up to you for advice and if so what are you what advice are you giving them sometimes they do but sometimes they don't you know which is funny like um i'll give advice always the drop of a hat even to some of the other bands that we tour with sometimes i'll see something and i'll like hey, you guys should change this and whether you want to listen to it or not i don't care mm-hmm. i'm always honest i'm not fake i don't uh, bullshit if you ask, sometimes people might not want to ask me because they're afraid of what I might say, mm-hmm. but I always try and give people tips on what they can do better because it's usually the little things that, that you know, most of the time the, the basics, everyone's got those covered. Mm-hmm. It's the little things that you don't notice, little details. And some guys listen, some guys pick it up, some guys don't. So it's not my, my place to go and offer advice. If you want it, uh, I'll give it to you. Um, let me rephrase that. It's not, it's not my place to expect that you know what i mean because some yeah. people just don't and i was it was the same when i was when i was starting and maybe sometimes you know i would ask advice if i thought i could trust somebody and other times you know what am i gonna say to you know rick flair he's not watching my matches why well, am mm-hmm. i gonna ask him for advice because all he's gonna say no everything's great really everything's great oh yeah every single thing i do is great and nothing against rick but he was just one of those guys probably never saw a match of mine in, in my life at the time so why would you go ask him for advice it just makes you sound stupid you know, I would more ask my peers about what they thought and try and figure it out. And then if somebody took interest in what I was doing, then I would ask them. But just to go up to somebody cold, just makes you kind of sound like a little bit of a brown noser, you know? Mm. Well, Chris, the second time we've done this, it's my 100th episode. You're now plus 100 episodes. That's amazing, man. Congratulations. Yeah. Who's been uh, your favorite guests? You don't have to say me. And that's well, not a trick I, question. I, if, I, if I can't, it's, it's, it's Chris Jericho. No, okay. I'll, I'll go through. Um, <sighs> see, I'm going to offend a bunch of different people with maybe previous guests. You, it's I'll not offending you, anybody. Just you know, which ones pop into your head first. You always have ones that are better than others. Uh, Glenn Matlock, because he was the first person to be on, was really, really cool. Like he was your Pistons. first guest? Yeah, Glenn nice. Matlock. Um, really, really cool. Bunch of different people. There's guitar players such as Tommy Emanuel, John Gom, a girl called Kaki King, who I'll send you a link to if you've not heard her. I, I don't feel a big Foo Fighters fan, but she played on a couple of albums ago. She co wrote a couple of tracks and everything. Very, very good. Nice. Um, who else has, has been good on it? Katie Tunstall is hilarious and she's a great singer songwriter. Um, and I'm sure the best is yet to come, much like your podcast. Yeah. With, um, well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, you go through and, and, it's like I like all of my shows. I haven't had one. That's the beauty of booking your own shows. It's like I haven't had one stinker yet. I'm sure other people might think so, but for me, I didn't have one going. Oof. I've had some where you had to edit a bit, and even some like, like Scott Bale, for example. I don't even know if you know who he is, but in the '70s, he was like he was a huge, huge star, teen idol, and he's been in show business for like 40 years ever since. Big star in America. Not good interview, mm-hmm. but once it was cut together, it was a great interview. Because right. sometimes you just have to edit it. Like as 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 the interviewer, you're thinking, "Oh my gosh, he's talking to his kid again." You know, it'd be like talking to me, and he's like, "Hey, baby, 
Put that toy away. No, you can't have that toy. Okay, hold on. Russell, Russell, Russell. Like 45 seconds. Sorry about that. So kills the momentum, but then you cut it out and it's great. So but um it's it's definitely a it's a fun it's a fun thing to do. And, it's funny, uh, it's good talking to another podcaster about podcasting. I don't know if you do the same as me. I'm constantly looking at the timer. I'm always. constantly looking and making sure the mics work. Yeah, and me paranoid too. the person I'm interviewed is thinking I'm being rude. Because you tell me a great story about Mike Tyson. And I, I don't want you thinking of it, but you're in, you're in I the do same the same boat. thing because I've had many times where... Uh, <laughs> no, I know what you're going to say. It's, uh, one time I had Miz, uh, WWE guy killed Miz, and Justin Roberts, the ring announcer. We did an hour in Australia. My plug fell out of the wall. I didn't have batteries in, lost the whole thing. Thankfully, we had another hour to do another show. But we were all drunk at that point. But um, another time, I had Ian Ziering, star of Sharknado. I didn't have his mic plugged in. Sorry, I didn't have my mic plugged in. Thank God his was plugged in. So the bleed of my voice yep. over his, we could turn it up and barely save it. But there's been a whole uh, Randy Bly from Lamb of God. He's in the middle of this great story. My thing goes dead uh, because um, it just stops because uh, it's too full. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong. So I'm the same way. That's why I always listen back to every show that I do because I get to listen to it as a fan. Because mm -hmm. when I'm recording it, I have to do like you're doing. Make sure the mic level's on. Make sure it's still recording. Mm -hmm. Make sure that, you know, there's not an earthquake that's going to fuck up my sound <laughs> or something like that. Go so, forbid. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, man, glad to be number 100 and uh, hopefully I'll be number 200. Well, let's do it again. The We're trilogy. shaking hands now. The trilogy. Chris Jericho, thank you very much, sir. Yeah, boy. A fantastic interview there with Chris Jericho. <laughs> very, very informative listening. Thank you, thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> thank you for coming. Uh, your remarks have been profound. <laughs> full of wisdom. Thank you. <laughs> you sound like a German Dracula. That's what I'm going for. Is it? Um, can you believe we've done 100 episodes? And uh, at no. times I think that it's just the only person that finds you funny is me. And the only person that finds me funny is you. Uh, I hope that's not true. Because in that case, the many thousands of people who are listening to this. A fantastic are... interview there with Chris Jericho. Unbelievable. Very informative listening. Thank you so much, Chris. Informative listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this yeah. podcast is. It's informative yeah, listening. Okay. Now, Ron, roll the theme music for Love Advice. Let's do it. Do you, do you, do you need love advice? Do you have a broken heart or pubic lice? Oh, oh, love advice. Thank you very much, Ron. Fantastic. Right. Nora, are you ready? Thank you very much for emailing in your 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 love advice um, inquiries, if that's even a thing. Uh, music at gmail.com. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Okay, Nora, are you ready to answer some questions and save some love advice lives? Yes. You ready to rock the house down? Let's do it. Catherine from Wisconsin. What? I'm from Wisconsin. Do you know Catherine? I don't know. Right, okay. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Scott, Nora. Love the podcast. You guys are great together. Thank you very much, Catherine. I am, this is now Catherine talking. I am Thanks. 21 and a student. Uh-huh. 
I recently slept with a guy at work and he has not paid any attention to me since. Uh-huh. I have totally fallen for him. Okay. Ryan, Why? Ryan and I have known each other since primary school. Why won't he speak to me, let alone date me? I overheard him talk to his friends about me. They asked him if him and I were now dating, and he said, nah, just another notch in the bedpost. I humped her, and I dumped her. I'd give her a 6 out of 10. Then later that day, he walked past me and said, oh, by the way, I left my contacts at yours. Just keep them, bitch. Then slapped me on the ass. What should I do, Catherine? Uh, well, first off, this guy sounds like a real asshole. So I don't think you need to be falling for a guy like that. I don't understand, Catherine. I'm sorry. I don't understand what you see in this guy. I just don't see it. Especially if he's going to be forgetful enough to leave his contacts at your house. Uh, Catherine, look, you have to find a guy who, um, is going to, uh, is going to keep his interest in you, okay? You have to find somebody who makes you feel good and who, uh, doesn't ignore you and say mean things about you. Okay, so you gotta find somebody else. This is not gonna work. Right, okay. What if he's really attractive? Even worse. Because then, if because it's, it's way worse when they're really attractive. Because then, it's harder to kick the habit. So you have to do it right away. You have to nip it in the bud. Do you hear what I'm saying, Catherine? You have to um, you have to cut it off. It's like cookies. Okay, they'll make you depressed and fat, and then you'll be all alone. Okay, you need a man that's like a good green juice. Okay. Thank you, D Catherine. Um... Just, just think green juice. Don't think cookies. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Daniel from Elgin. Uh-huh. Where's that? Elgin's in Scotland. Oh, okay. Hello! Hi, <laughs> Scott slash Nora. The podcast is brilliant. I listen every week. Nora, I can't wait to read your book. Oh, thank you very much. That's sweet. Thank you. I need some love advice. Uh-huh. Well, we all do, so that's okay. You've come to the right place, man. That's what I was just going to say. That is exactly the line you should be delivering. We'll do that again. I need some love advice. Well, you've come to the right place, my friend. Boom shakalak. There's a girl in my work called Sharon. What she is it with all of your listeners porking the people at work? Or not. Right. Okay. <laughs> There's a porking. What the fuck? I've never heard that expression. Me neither. I've never heard it either. <laughs> There's a girl at my work called Sharon. She's so gorgeous and easy to talk to, but I don't think she likes me in that way. I just don't know how to tell her I like her. I have been very apprehensive because there's 10 people in her office, three girls and seven guys, and she has slept with five of the guys but hasn't slept with me. Her and one of the guys had the fling at the Christmas party. She kissed another guy called Stephen two weeks back. She got on with John in the cupboard and the other two are her exes. 
yet I feel like I'm the only one with true feelings for her. Please help, Daniel. All right, Daniel, I want you to realize that you're probably the only man in your office without syphilis. And if I were you, I would throw yourself. <laughs> I would throw yourself. <laughs> I would throw yourself a big fucking health party by yourself. That's what I would do. I would buy Twizzlers and action figures and some confetti and about a handle of tequila. And I would stay home and do the fucking Macarena until five in the morning because everybody you're working with has herpes except for you. And if that is not, um, if that is not an achievement, I don't know what is. Thank you and good night. iTunes, thanks for your continued support. Um, please keep us on. Please keep us on. Oh my god. <laughs> Even I'm shocked. Daniel. Why is that shocking? It's probably true. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm not going to edit this out. I'm, I'm not going to edit this out. You know what? <laughs> Daniel, look, I'm really proud of you. I think it's it's a good... No, I'm serious. It's not a good thing to be, you know, uh, in that group of people. You see what I'm saying? Think about all the things flying around in between all those people. I mean, oh you really God. dodged a bullet. A bullet that keeps that'll keep uh, hitting you throughout your entire beautiful Scottish life. You know? Yeah! Thanks, Daniel. Um, and uh, please excuse the dreadful link and the dreadful pun. But now, we're going to move on to an interview with a member of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> The very first man that was ever on this podcast that made this podcast fucking cool. Because in episode one, when you get a guy who's in the the Sex Pistols on your show, you know it's going to be a damn good podcast. And all joking aside, a hundred episodes later, I owe a sh there is a ton of credit that I throw Glenn Matlock's way because he made this show cool. First episode, Sex Pistol on it. It was going to be plain sailing from then on in, and it has been. There was only one guy I wanted back for this to ensure he was on it, and we managed to get him. Glenn Matlock, legend. Here we go. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast, and joining me now is the man that was on the very first episode, Mr. Glenn Matlock. How are you, sir? Not so bad, Scott. Yeah, good, good. Now, we were just talking there about the, the far flung places that you've been in over your time. Uh, tell us about your time in Scotland, if you can remember, right? So you said there you've been to Glasgow, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, where else? Um, I went to Woburn, I went to some Hogmanay do there once, which was a bit messy, to be honest. Um, that, was, that was in the 80s, I suppose, about 85. I remember trying to get the boat out to, um, what's the island you would go to from the Mole, Isle of Mole from Woburn? Sounds about right, yep. Yeah. We got about 100 yards out into the harbour and the steering gear broke down. This is all at half past seven in the morning. And it was going around in circles for about two hours. So they just opened the bar and um, limped back to port just in time for the pub to open. And I can't remember too much after that, but it, it was a laugh, but a mess. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, you've been up in Scotland a, a, a few times over the years and you've, you've been quite the traveller from your, uh, especially over the last couple of years since I last spoke to you. Now, you've got an Australian tour coming up. Um, you're oh, looking... yeah, bro. Oh, that's funny. I was just dealing with that earlier on. Um, yes, how do you know that? I suppose that's on the Pistols website, isn't it? Yeah, it's on, uh, it's on your website, actually. I checked out earlier on and i seen that you've got a, is that a new lineup you've got together? It's a... Um... Slim Jim Phantom and Earl Slick. Yeah, we've been doing it for a while. We've actually got an album in the can, which is not out yet. I'm taking my time trying to get that out properly. Um, and it's like a loose conglomeration of chums. Um, and it's jolly good, actually. I mean, it's great playing with Slim. He's been my mate for many a year. And through him a few years back, I met Earl Slick. He's a fantastic guitarist. Don't tell him that, but he's... <laughs> He's, he's great, you know, and he's so kind of adventurous in his plan. He's got such a great feel. And um, that's it. In fact, we did some gigs about a year ago. Um, about half a dozen some gigs. We played at Rebellion Festival. Um, did a few other small things here. But in the meantime, we made that record. We've done a few things in the States together. In fact, we're going to Dallas to do some corporate show. Um, next, not this weekend, coming next weekend. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Excellent. So you've got the Australian tour coming up. It's very exciting. Now, one of the... Uh, you've been to Brazil, I think, last year as well. How was that? That was fun. Um, yeah, I got invited. I got some friends of mine who have got this wacky band called the Brothers of Brazil. They're a two-piece band. This, this drummer guy called Supla. He's like a punk rock um, samba drummer. And his brother plays fantastic... So, is it samba from Brazil? I don't know. Um classical guitar but with a fuzz box it's like an acoustic classical guitar but with a fuzz box and they really whacked out and they had this stage of collaborations at the Rock in Rio festival and they asked me to go over and do it so I loved going to Brazil why not and because I did that I then got invited to go on to play in Argentina with a, a pickup band but it was like the the Argentine, Argentinian Sex Pistols really good players and we did a few shows over there and it was good so I've been sowing the seeds for doing a few different things lots of people want to book me but they don't want to pay for a band to go over so I spend a lot more time rehearsing than actually doing gigs with various different people but it's fine it's all part of life's rich pageant now, um, out of all the places that you've played, I've, unfortunately, I've never got a chance to go over to Japan it's always been a dream of mine to get over there I'm assuming that you've been there what's it like? I, yeah it's it's well, I love going to Japan. It's like the, the really old-fashioned and the brand spanking new and sort of existing cheek by jail. The people are great. It, everything looks cool. Um, and uh, I, I just love it there, really. Well, what can I say about it? It's, I mean, it's it's kind of the closest thing to being on the moon. Or You know, if you go to Spain or France or America, you can work out what the signs say because it's all in kind of Western-style alphabet. But as soon as you go to Japan, everything's higgledy-piggledy. So even the even the adverts look wacky, you know, and you're not feeling you're being sold things all the time. But I, I love playing that. I mean, where have you going in the world? Kids are kids. You know, people who come to gigs are normally pretty appreciative. I'm fortunate that, um, you know, people like me because of the pistols thing and other things I've done over the years. But, um, you know, crowds are pretty much the crowds. Same Got the same attitude wherever you go, unless you go to the the uh, place in Scotland where we play with the Pistols. Is it the SECC? Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's it. I was there. Yeah, where 
they're completely bonkers. <laughs> it's great. And not that, that, you that guys know how to let off steam. Yeah, that gig was amazing. That was a really good one. Of course, that was um, what, what year was that? That would have been about two thousand and eight, I think, or two thousand and seven. Yeah, well, we did, we did it twice. We did it in I was a filthy Luther tour in ninety six and um, two thousand and eight as well. Yeah. Now, um, talking of that tour, I didn't actually know this, but you have recently, well, last year, I think, released a book, a kind of picture book of that tour, um, the tour in ninety yeah. six, of course. Yeah. Glenn Matlock's filthy Luke of photo file. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I'm going to, my thing to do today on my to-do list is to go on Amazon and, and get that book because a couple of pictures online look really, really good. So from what I hear, you had various different cameras that you you took on the tour. You found them in a box and years later, you kind of, you looked them out and decided I'm going to release that's a, a pretty book much on this. It, yeah, it was just sitting in the corner for, for years and I've sort of taken up a bit of space. My mate said, what have you got there? And I said, well, I've got all this, this stuff from when I did the filthy literature and I didn't really know what to do with it. And he said, oh, I'll send the butchers. And he went, wow, this is great. And he's in, in book publishing. And he said, oh, well, my, perhaps my mate would be interested in putting this out. So I left him with it. And um, here comes the book. You know, but I don't know that they made the best job of publicising it because you only just found out about it. Um, yeah, but it, it's some good stuff. You know, it's like the, the Sex Pistols at Osaka Aquarium. Uh, not many people have seen that, you know. Yeah, definitely need to check it out because I was re- doing a little bit of research on it and I, I read an interview with yourself too and you stated that the first time around with the Pistols, I think the biggest audience that, that you'd played in front of with a band was 600, but of course revisiting it a few years later, um, it was something like one of the biggest audiences were 125,000, so... Yeah, but that was the one in Roskilde, except we got bottled off that, that show, which was a bit of a drag accident, it was a few others. I think there was another one of the other bands were, were jealous of us. There was supposed to be no glass in the whole arena, and we were being hit by empty champagne bottles and stuff, which when they've been slung, they're um, they've got a lot of what's the word? Um, I don't know, I was trying to get all clever then, but it's beyond it this time of day. <laughs> So I'll definitely ch- uh, check out that book. I actually spoke to a guy that n- knows you the other day, uh, Chris Spedding, you know, the guitar player. All right, Chris. Yeah, Chris is a great guy. In fact, the last time I went to Australia, I think it was with Spedding. I did some time with him and Slim Jim Phantom and um, a guy called Robert Golden. I don't know if you've heard of Robert Golden. He had sort of had a hit with Fire many years ago. He's got a fantastic voice. He sings like Elvis. He's that good. Um, and we went and played the Bar and Bay Blues Festival and did a couple of other club shows while we were there. Yeah, but I, you know, I'm quite fortunate that I've kind of got to do the Pistols thing through that. I've got to play with people just before the punk thing and just after that. And, you know, I'm a musician. I like playing with people. It makes life interesting. And the phone rings and you fancy doing this, fancy doing that. And yeah, I do. But the main thing that I'm doing is is this album, which is done, but I still want to be seen as a pretty cool songwriter, a contemporary one, you know. Because one of the guys I think you look up to is, is of course, Ray Davies, who you said that you can inspire to, to be like. Um, I take it you've always been a big fan of the Kinks? Always been a big fan of the Kinks, yeah. I mean, they were pretty out there um, with their early kind of rock stuff. I think they invented heavy metal, actually. You really got me, because there's a cool change in that, which should have been like a 12-bar progression, but wasn't. And I think that was the birth of heavy riffing. 
Um, but, you know, he's just done so many things and songs like well, fantastic lyricists that really touches you, you know. Um, yeah, so that's somebody good to aspire to. Yeah, of course, Ray Davies, Townsend, John Lennon all went to art school, which I think in turn inspired you to also go to art school to get into the... That was a whole... You know, I had a, an interest in art and was reasonable drawing, you know, that... Um, the main reason I went was to try and get in a band because that's what I read. And it was kind of funny that um, although I went, I, I, formed, I got involved with forming the band outside of art school. Um, yeah. But yeah, I went to St. Martin's in, in Soho in London um, in the early to mid 70s. And, um, you know, when you're 17 wandering around Soho, it was, it was fantastic. It was really eye uh, the last interview, um, I kind of regret asking a couple of the questions um, that I did because I felt that they were kind of standard Sex Pistols questions in a way and I always find that, well, I've, I've read since then that you find that the, the, the Pistols are a little bit of an albatross and some days you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not totally comfortable talking about it or I like to embrace it. Um, so how do you feel about it now? I mean, you were saying a couple of things earlier, have been very positive about the experience. Um, do you still come and go with it a little bit, if that makes sense? It comes and goes, you know. It's, it's, I mean, this new record I made is a long, long way from the Sex Pistols, but it's still good. But you, you play it to something, like, oh, it's nothing like the Pistols, but it's not supposed to be like the Pistols. It's 40 years ago, you know. Um, and while I dig the Pistols, I'm proud of it the right contribution to that. Um, there's lots of other influences and fish in the sea, you know, and it's kind of not really allowed me to move on a little bit, you know. Yeah, because naturally a lot of people that are going to come to the gigs, are, they're, they're wanting to hear those old tunes, I would imagine. Yeah, but I mean, we've got a fantastic, on this new album, we've got a fantastic version of a big ballad by Scott Walker called Montague Terrace with kettle drums and I just play acoustic guitar on it. It's it's a long, long way from it. But but I think the spirit's the same because it's the content of the lyrics of the songs is the thing that matters and that's kind of what makes it punk somehow. It's not um a guitar turned up to eleven and spiky air. So well, and I think a good you know, purveyor of that attitude was Bo, who's, who's recently passed away. He was always really quite cutting edge. Um, I mean, some of it was great, some of it was a bit silly, you know, spacemen and gnomes and things, but uh, fantastic body of work that musically pushed a lot of boundaries. I was going to bring Mr. Bowie up because your tweet the other day, a great quote uh, saying that he was the governor of Cutting Edge for so long. So did you get a chance to meet uh, uh, the man himself? I, I met him a few times when I was playing with Iggy Pop. He was big mates with Jim, James Osterberg. Um, and he sort of hung out a little bit. Um, and I met him in England and we had a couple of nights out. Not just me and him, but with the crowd of people. In fact, I remember it was Iggy Pop's girlfriend's birthday and we went to a, a businessman's cabaret club in Moorgate in the city of London. And that was a right laugh, you know. It's funny, some girl came out and sang Hey Big Spender in this really cheap CNA's Brian Island evening dress and sang Hey Big Spender right into David Barry's eyes and everybody went to the ground to open up and swallow them out of embarrassment. But he was fine about it, but she had no shame whatsoever. <laughs> it was funny. 
<laughs> so um yeah you mentioned the Iggy pop um so what was what was that experience like how long did you how long did you play with Iggy pop about a year and a half i think i did a i did the i played bass on the tour to promote the album new values which they'd already recorded you know before i got involved um just a, the bloke who played bass bass on the album jackie clark i think his name was um he was playing second guitar on the tour, so I, I did that. And then in the middle of the tour, we cut the Soldier album, which I've actually got a song and a, a few co-writers on. Not sure it's his best, his best album, but it's not my fault. And there's some really good songs in it, you know. And in fact, Bowie, I know he mixed, he's not credited, but he mixed a song called Loco Mosquito. And there's a big bass run in the middle, and he pushes the bass really right up when this bass run comes. And I'm like, yeah, fuck, very good. <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny, me. I've done what I've done, but I'm also a fan of, of people who are cool. And I've been fortunate enough to meet them. You know, and then I did, in more recent years, I was playing with the Faces, which was, was my all-time favourite band. You know, because they seem to have a laugh about everything all the time, always. Um, now, sadly, couple of them now passed away but um that was a big buzz yeah i was fortunate enough to interview kenny actually obviously the the faces small faces drummer oh my god that guy's got some stories i bet he has yeah yeah but i did a little session with kenny just before christmas and i did two i did something with him with zach wilde who's got a band that he plays guitar in um and so we did a couple of small faces songs for that project and then i did another thing they did a Faces song with some girls called The Rebels. I had to come across them, but they're getting an album together. You know, I've, I've, I know loads of people, and, you know, my art is that I'm a songwriter and I sort of front things, but also, it sounds a bit silly, really, but I'm not a bad bass player, and um, it's a bit like being a plumber, you know, or an electrician. Um, oh, yeah, can you put some bass on that? Well, let me have a look. Oh, I don't know. Oh. Cost you, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like that sometimes, but I enjoy doing it. It's, it makes life interesting. So after the Australian tour with this band, is there any other tours lined up for that in order to promote the album? Um, I, we're going to go and do some stuff in the Far East. We got some shows Singapore and Dubai and a couple of things in South Africa where I've never been to. But it's you know it's that time of year when we're setting things up. Basically, I'm talking to people about getting the album out. Um, I'm, you know, I still do some solo shows every now and then. Tomorrow I'm off to Italy for a few nights to do some acoustic shows. Um, there's something else we're going to. We've got a show in, in Dallas, Texas, it's like a corporate kind of thing. I think I mentioned that. Uh, not this weekend, the weekend after. So I get around. You, know. oh, you can't, you can't complain at that, Glenn. That's a lot of good stuff. No, I, I know that. Um, that people pay good money to some to go to some of the places I get to go to, and I get paid to do it. To do it. So that's kind of cool. Is yeah, I'm in quite a good place. I'm I'm happy about my position in the world. But my burning ambition is to get the new album out, which I think is really good, and that everybody thinks the same thing too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, uh, it's good to hear that you you seem very enthusiastic about it. And it's a good selling point as well because it makes us want to hear it. Um, out of interest, how how long has it been now since you've you've spoken to uh, Mr. Lydon, Mr. Rotten? Oh, um, I, you know, I'm spoken to John since the last gig we did in 2008. And um, everybody thinks the last show that we did was at Amnesty Apollo or whatever it's called these days. We did an extra gig in 
Victoria and Spain in the Basque Country just after that. Um, and then spoke to him since then. Well, that's fine by me. I see Paul quite a lot. But we did a thing on New Year's Eve. We got up and played with the band called Rotten L Gang New Year's Eve party with Paul's daughter and a couple of other people. Um, and in fact, he came and played on the thing I did with Kenny. He played on another couple of tracks. So he's there, yeah, but John, I don't know where John is. Steve lives in Los Angeles. I could pick up the call and call him anytime. But I just don't. It can be a bit of an old misery sometimes. Um, John, I'll see him when I see him. Glenn, thank you very much once again for coming on. Oh, I was desperate to get you on for the 100th episode, given that you were kind enough to be in the very first one. So thank you very much. Look forward to yeah. hearing the new album. And like well, I said... You can, hear, you, you can hear a slice of it. If you go on YouTube, there's a, there's, we did a version of Happy, you know, Farrah Williams' song. Of course. For, for just a happy Glenn And um, you'll find it. And it's pretty good. I'm not sure that's going to be on the album, but we just did it for fun to to wind up the punks when we did Rebellion. <laughs> it was funny, like, we started the opening set with it and night going, what? And then by the end of the song, they were all singing it. <laughs> Excellent. I've got this on YouTube right now and this is going to be the first thing I uh, play when we get uh, off bam, the phone. Bam. It don't sound nothing like his version. It sounds like a new song, really, but um, Okay, Glenn, thanks very much. Have a good time in Australia. Have a good time in Italy come tomorrow and enjoy the year and no doubt we'll talk again sometime. Yeah. All right, mate. Man, right. There you go. Take care, man. A fantastic interview there. With oh, yes, and thank you very much. The Sex Pistols have been my favourite for 320 years. Fantastic. Very informative listening. <laughs> Extremely informative listening. That's great. No, seriously, uh, thank you. And thank you. Okay. It's amazing. You got the bookends. One and 100. Good there stuff. you go, Matlock, one in 100, what a legend, what a nice guy. Member of the Sex Pistols. There you go. And you want to say? <clears throat> yes, I have an announcement, and it's a surprise announcement for Scott. It's actually a surprise announcement for everyone, but here we go, okay? So from now on, I'm going to be taking musical requests, Okay. So if you would like me to play you a song on an episode of our little thing here, you can email Scott along with your love advice, okay? And if we like the request, then I will play it for you, okay? So if you'd like me to play a request next week, you just email Scott, and then I might play something uh, that you may have never heard before in a violin, okay? It'll be very fun. So we're starting this thing right now, and Scott, I hope that it's okay with you because... I didn't ask you, and I'm um, sorry about that. Okay, great. Go with me. Yep, I was wondering. Nora says I've got an announcement to make, and I just said, yep, we'll record, and whatever you say, it'll go out there. So when Nora says she's going to make an announcement, you never know what. I decided what to make clothing only out of bananas, so please send your charitable banana donations to my house in Los Angeles so that I can make clothing. Very nice. Okay, right, that's cool. That sounds good to me. You know, we're progressing all the time. Like I said earlier, we're going up in the world. We, I tell you what, all joking aside, this podcast has progressed a shitload, hasn't it? <laughs> I love the way you said that just now. Can you say it again? What? That whole thing. The podcast has progressed a shitload. The podcast has progressed a shitload, hasn't it? 
No, but the way you said it, the you put a lot of emphasis. This on... podcast has progressed a shitload. <laughs> so, you say it in my accent. I know I can't. That'll be a disaster. Doesn't I'll, matter. I'm go for it. It's, like a it's a hundredth episode. Come on. I'm gonna sound like an Indian priest vacationing in Mexico. It's not gonna sound Scottish at all. Fair enough. Right. You got to say at the end of the episode. That's what you got to do. Anyway, that being said, um, Edinburgh. Do it again. Edinburgh. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? Johann Sebastian Bach. Oh yes, here we go. Tell me about Johann Sebastian Bach and what makes okay. Johann Sebastian Bach special? Because a lot of people see Johann Sebastian Bach as a fat little midget from Germany with a stupid wig, and he's got a stupid fat chin, um, and his songs are are are, are, are shit. But I think Johann Sebastian Bach is really good. Why is it? Why is he good? Hit me. Well, look, I'm not a classical music historian, so I'm not going to give you like you know the the most official thing. But in my opinion, okay, so Bach was born in 1685 and he died in 1750. Rest in peace, Bach. Rest in peace, Bach. Rest in and peace. And he came from an extraordinarily uh, talented and huge musical family. I mean, the, the family tree of the box is like dozens or maybe even hundreds of branches. And a lot of them were composers. There's who, another one the, who's the, very the family, famous. The family tree called, of who? Huh? What? The family tree of who? Oh, Bach. The Bach? Yeah. So. Who are they? There was another one, huh? Say it again. What? The box? Say it properly. That's it. Okay. So, uh, there was another one who was very famous called C.P.E. Bach, which is Carl Philip Emanuel Bach. He was another very famous Bach composer. But there are other ones, and um, Bach was a pianist, and he composed um, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces for um, piano and violin and chorus and an enormous amount of stuff. Um, some of it, of course, you recognize very well and know. And um, he died with no money in an unmarked grave, and nobody knew who he was because the style of his music, which was called like basically counterpoint, um, the style of his music had gone to fashion by the time he died. And so it's a great tragedy that his music has survived now nearly 300 years. Um, and even longer than that, if you count before he died. And and when he died, he had nothing. But then he became extremely famous because um, a few uh, decades after he died, uh, Mendelssohn, another great composer, I believe the story is that he played one of Bach's works at a recital and boom, Bach came back into existence and now every person on earth has heard Bach music. So there you go. If you die with nothing, you don't know what that means because you might become a legend Thank you. There's still hope for me. Do you know what I really? Well, you, don't know yet. you don't know yet. Do you, Do you know what I? I mean, out of all the the things that Bach is is brought to the world, do you know what I, I, I like about him the most? You're talking about J. S. Bach, right? Johann Sebastian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what I like the about main, him the most? Main compadre. Yeah. What about him? His surname. Yeah. I'm, it just yes. rolls off the tongue. Bach. It's the I best surname. I'm going to change my name to Scott Bach. I know it's so gentle and sexy when you say his name. Bach! Yeah. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? You sound like a dog that's had its vocal cords removed. <laughs> Have right. you heard that? Okay. Listen. Yes. 
tell me when you you improvise in the style of Bach. What what does that mean to improvise in the style of Bach, and how does that? What, how do you distinguish between that and another style of improvisation that's different to Bach? Well, um, yeah, anytime you want to improvise something in a sort of classical style, um, not saying it's a great artistic achievement, but it is fun to do as an exercise. Uh, basically what you're doing is you have some chords in mind in your head and you sort of weave through them using scale degrees 1, 3, and 5, and sometimes 7. And uh, it's really comparable to bebop, which is um, a style of improvisation that also uses chords and you sort of weave through them. But you can weave through them using sort of every degree of the scale. So you have a lot of half steps and sort of strange notes. But not not as smart, isn't she? Not as smart. You know what I mean? She says she's not a music historian. She knows her shit. See, when you ask her about Bach, I didn't even, I swear to God, I didn't even give her the heads up that we we're going to be talking about this. I just said, oh, like this, honestly, I promise you, about two seconds before I was about to record, I says, Nora, we're going to talk about Johann Sebastian Bach. And it's just like, all oh, right, okay, I know a little bit about it. And boom, shakalak, she just knocks it out of the park. Um, great. So as I was saying is um, in jazz improvisation, especially bebop, there's a lot of other extraneous notes that make each that make your improvisation sound a little bit more uh, interesting. And then in classical music, this thing that Bach sort of created, this amazing style of counterpoint, which is very similar to bebop, you basically uh, are going from chord to chord, but without using the notes that don't belong very well. So it's a little bit more beautiful to some people, a little bit more easily digestible and pleasant. But I mean, you know, everybody's got their own opinion. I like them both. I like everything, actually. So. There you go. Can you perform for us just now, Nora? If you could be so kind, you've been you've been extremely kind enough to bring your violin with you on the show today, and and we very much appreciate that, Nora. But if if you can, leading on to all the fantastic points that you made there regarding Johann Sebastian Bach and his music, if you yeah. could, if you could, you could perform. I've Something. got an idea here, okay, so I'm going to start with a Bach piece. It's a very, very simple little thing I learned when I was a kid. It's just a Bach minuet, which mm. means it's basically just a very easy tune in three. It was meant for dancing. So I'm going to play it, then I'm going to play it and improvise on it as if I were Bach, then I'm going to play it and improvise on it as if I were a bebop jazz musician. And so you can hear the differences in the improvisation and compare it to the original thing. Okay, ready? Absolutely, that sounds like a treat. It sounds like a treat, Nora. It really, really does. Okay, so Looking here's the original. Okay, this is the Bach minuet in G. Now, Bach wrote a billion minuets, but here's just one of them. Okay, so here's the original one. You guys might know this. simple Bach minuet with two extra added notes from me at the end. Okay, then if I were, what did I say if I were Bach? Oh yeah, because if I was going to improvise on this, I might do this. Okay. 
extra notes to the melody. And then if I was going to play jazz, I would probably, sorry, let me just download this in my head. Um, okay, so we add a few more notes that aren't quite as um, obviously belonging to the punch. <laughs> So there you go. Okay, there's a bunch of things in there. Nora. Well done, Nora. That was a treat. And that, that is Nora Germain. And that is, and, and, and no rehearsal. Just, we're going to talk about Bach, and then you get that. A extremely insightful, and without question, the epitome of informative listening. Oh, thank you, Scott. Yeah. Well, we are just having some fun here. I've never done any of that before, so thanks for that was me. wonderful. That I tell you what, that Nora, that was a treat. Oh, thank that you. That that really was it's a treat. It's the happy one hundred. It's one hundred. For one hundred. We're talking about that is educational. People are listening to us and they're learning. They're learning a shitload. They're learning a shitload. Happy birthday for the podcast. Are you ready? Go for it. Okay. Special one hundred. Lovely. And now we're going to cut to, to we're going to cut to our final interview, and we'll be right back with ya. All right. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast, and joining me now is none other than Sepultura frontman Derek Green. How are you, sir? Fantastic. Thanks. How's the uh, the weather in Brazil right now? Um, I would imagine it'd be a lot better than Scotland, because in Scotland it always rains. <laughs> All right, now it's. Uh... It's wonderful, actually. It's a uh, perfect weather. It was really hot about the 90s. Now it's about 80, raining a little bit. But uh, Sao Paulo is a city that desperately needs rain uh, now. <laughs> Fresh water. So um, you guys have obviously, um, I'm a good bit, I'm uh, a good distance away from you just now. You guys have got a, a really good history with the UK over the years. Um, it's it's a, a country that's always loved Sepultura. Can you tell us about about your experience of performing over here? Well, I I came here in 1997. Was my first time here. Um, it was my only time in South America, and I, I knew knew I didn't know anyone. Um, it was really uh, something completely new for me. Um, I only knew the band as far as the music, but I didn't know them as individuals. So that was my first encounter of coming to Brazil and the culture and, and um, just kind of really uh, learning from the people uh, in my band and their friends and then developing my own friends and learning to speak Portuguese and then moving here. And uh, it was just it pretty much, you know, changed my whole life. But um, I've just seen the city, um, and I've also seen Brazil 
feel like just go through so many changes and uh you know, for me, it's it's really become a second home. Wow. Now, take us back to um, many, many years ago. I do believe your mum was actually a, a music tutor. Yes. Um, so tell, tell us about her influence on your career. Uh, it, it definitely had a big influence because I always had music involved in my life as a child. Um, I grew up hearing, you know, piano being played all the time because we had uh, a piano in the house. And, uh, and just hearing a lot of classical to uh, records being played by my father, which were a lot of times gospel records. And, uh, and so they both performed in the church. They both were singing in the church. My father was, uh, my mother was actually playing piano and singing. Um, so uh, for a very young age, I've always really been into music. And it's been a big part of my family where each person had to uh, learn and play their own instrument or discover something that they enjoyed to play. Um, so, I, I mean, for me, I, I always loved different types of music. I was never thought of music as something as uh, one style that I have to like. I, I, I never conceived any, <laughs> I never really understood people who, who were that way, you know, block themselves and limit themselves in so many different ways. So for me, I've always been open to all styles of music, but Definitely with the influence of my mother at a very young age, that helped. Now, can you remember, can you tell us what band made you want to join a band yourself? Yeah, I think actually going to see shows and uh, really changed my whole perspective of music and really uh, gave me the idea of, of really wanting to be in the band. Uh, one of the first bands that I saw live was uh, Bad Brains. Um, it's like hardcore punk rock. Um, it was amazing time for them. And, uh, it was just a big influence, you know, it was, I mean, it just really started seeing them really up close and, and being in the crowd with everyone jumping around and, and the band going crazy. And, and also the fact that, uh, you know, these are guys, these are like four, you know, black guys that were playing this crazy style of music. And so that made a big difference for me where I felt that it, didn't really matter what color you were or what religion or race you come from, you know, the style of music and music in general is really open. You can do what you really want to do with it, you know? And so that, that was a big influence for me to, to want to do that, 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 that style of like really seeing the audience going crazy and then the pit. And, um, and, and, and so, I mean, you have to understand, like when I was growing up, there were a lot of kids who didn't understand, uh, this whole openness about music and, 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 and culture. Um, and a lot of times people would say to me who were black or saying, Oh, that's, that's white people's music. You know, why, why are you listening to that? I didn't understand what they were talking about, you know? And, and I started to realize that people are really bred to be a certain color a lot of times or certain way, um, which is unfortunate, you know, it's like, okay, you're black. So this is how you should be, you know, you're white. This is how you should be, which is ridiculous. And, uh, and it actually limits people in so many things that they can possibly do in life. And I never had these limitations. My parents weren't really, they told me to be proud of myself, you know, myself or who I am inside, not really on the outside so much because nobody has a choice in that. You know, people are born into a, a certain color or, or a race or whatever, you know, just you have no choice in that matter. So. I think the most important thing that was really forced to them is like, what do you really want to do? You know, all the other stuff people are going to be worried about. But once you show them who you truly are, then anything else like surrounding you shouldn't really matter.
Um, so I always had this approach with music, and I always thought it was, you know, I never, I always thought it was weird if, they, if people were saying, oh, you're speaking this way, you're talking this way, and it's like, this is who I am, you know, and, and, and that's the way it is. I don't see in these weird, like, colors that people are constantly, you know, very limit themselves in. So for me, uh, it was really uh, important just to, 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 you know, really gravitate to things that I truly loved and not worry about what other people were going to say. I, at that point, I just stopped giving a shit about what other people were going to say and think of me and start living my life the way that I wanted to live. It's, it's interesting because I think the, the style of music um, that Sepultura play, I think the, the, the metal community, if you like, it's um, as much as I love the music, I think the fans can be extremely judgmental of, of metal. Oh, it's, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's super critical um the 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 style of music the the fans of that music are very critical of certain aspects i think you found that over the years oh definitely i mean i think especially coming from like a hardcore or punk scene it's very different the whole metal scene actually um i i think the mentality of of the music uh, i mean the music itself is completely different but also the lyrics and everything that's really the representation behind it. I think there was a lot of stuff with metal that I didn't really understand at a, a young age. It was dealing a lot with uh, fantasy or in the, in the fantasy world. There were certain things I really couldn't really, uh, I couldn't relate to so much. Uh, as far as hardcore, where it's more straight to uh, a lot of political things, a lot of social issues. And, and I think there probably was, this, there is this style of writing in metal, of course, but it was much more prevalent. It was much more obvious in our hardcore and punk scene. You know, the scene was very diverse. You know, for a lot of women there, a lot of men, you know, a good mix of people from different, you know, it didn't matter like religious or race or background. You just saw a mix of people at shows. Um, but and when I started to uh, enter into the metal realm, <laughs> um, it was definitely different, you know. I, I noticed a big difference. I mean, uh, I didn't see uh, that much diversity, and uh, and all this, and all the other issues were a little bit different as well. But um, I think it's growing, you know, the metal scene. It's grown so much from uh, since it's existed, and so I, I think it's continuously evolving, you know. But there's always these uh, very uh, very close-minded and judgmental people extremely you know in the metal scene there's no getting around that at all i mean there's people that just are very set in their ways and uh um it's unfortunate at times but you know what are you gonna do there's there's some of them that actually they treat the the, the band they like like a sports team they think you can only like one band you know what i mean <laughs> which is yeah i it's so ridiculous. I, I mean, it does feel that way at times, you know, where people are picking it that way. But I, I like I said, you're going to really lose so much of what really is going on around you when you limit yourself in that way. You know, it's just it's very idiotic, I think. Um, I mean, there's so much good stuff happening out there and, and so many uh, incredible people doing it. So, you know, why close your eyes? Why think in such a narrow way? One of the, the bands that's obviously driven the metal scene for many years, of course, one of the pioneer bands, if you like, uh, Metallica. Tell us about what it was like or what it's been like supporting them um, over the years. I think you guys have done a couple of festivals together and everything. What, what, right. was, what was that like? 
It was great. I mean, it was really, uh, I really admired them. Uh, they're a band also where they did their changes for themselves, you know, despite the blowback that could happen. But it's so important as an artist to do this. So I have a lot of respect for them, even if I didn't really like the changes that they were making. But I respect them for doing it, you know, 100%. And so it was an honor to be able to open up for them. And um, it was a little overwhelming at first, just for the fact that I had, I mean, I was such a fan. And then uh, doing these massive shows in South America was, you know, added on top of it. Um, but it was really like not so much of a relationship uh, of even talking uh, so much in the very beginning, but it developed over the years uh, after opening up for them and, and seeing them more often and, and then going by names, you know, them remembering our names and, and then everyone, you know, them just coming and hanging out in the dressing room, you know, or like, oh, okay, we're going to go to dinner. You know, you guys want to come and, and just really becoming much closer. So it's great to have that evolution that happened very naturally, you know, and uh, uh, it, like I said, it's something, you know, those opening up for them was uh, a learning experience in so many ways, but I, I, it was fantastic. You mentioned that. I'm just interested. You touched on the fact that it was a learning experience. Can you think of anything that you, that you learned from them, the way that they conducted themselves, anything they did musically or um, business-wise? Is there anything you can think of that you, that you picked up from them? Yeah, I, I think the best thing, I mean, it's to really communicate and be honest with whoever it is that you're speaking with, you know, especially with other artists, you know, about certain things that you may not feel are correct. You know, there were certain element problems we were having with the sound opening up for Metallica and that our sound was being pushed down by their sound engineer. Uh, and then we just came to them and we're like, look, we can't even continue doing this tour if you keep doing this. Your sound guy is like totally killing our sound when uh it's just it, it doesn't make us look good in any any at all so uh we need to negotiate or, or try to work on something where we can have a, a better sound but you know like little things like that where you just have to really step up and say it instead of just like okay i'm not going to say anything just let it go but it's important just to to state you know your how you're feeling and and to really have that communication i think in every aspect of music with your your bandmates with your manager, you know, with the people doing your art, you know, everyone that's your your crew, you know, to have this communication is something I really learned is super important in order to keep everything flowing. Now, let's not forget Sepultura, over 30 years now worth of music. So when it comes to picking that set list for a, for a live show, <laughs> is, that, is that quite difficult? Because like I said, it's, it's, it's years worth of material. Um. Oh, I mean, there's certain there's certain songs that we have to play, um, and they become very obvious. They're very good songs to play live. So there's a, a lot of those to, to choose from. Um, I, I think over the years we've been very fortunate to be able to to pick and choose so many different variety of songs and different uh, you know uh, stages of the band. Um, but each tour, when we're representing an album, we we like to play as many songs as we can from that new album. And thrown in with the the older like classic songs, but on this thirty year uh, tour that we just did, we really were picking from every aspect from the very beginning to the to the present. So it was really a lot of fun to dig back and, and try to pick out certain songs, um, like B side songs. I think were a little more interesting that people uh, normally wouldn't hear on tour, or songs that even Andreas never played or Paulo never played, you know, live, you know, in their whole career. So 
it was interesting to pick out those songs and and to learn them me being a fan not knowing every song which is like oh yeah i forgot about that song okay let's do that and some of those songs would either go well or they would just you know it just didn't really move the crowd so much with the crowd had kind of forgotten that song maybe or it wasn't like a song that really stuck in their mind as much as maybe another song from another album um so it was like pick and choose you know we had, we went through a certain uh, we had songs in the that we could play in case the song didn't work well you know like let's say we played a song it's like oh that, let's switch it to this song so we practiced every you know as many songs as possible before the tour so we could have a lot of things to choose from but it was fantastic being able to play those songs from the very beginning to the end a lot of complex stuff and uh you know even over the years we've done sets where we've done the whole arise album from beginning to the end which i think was the most difficult because it's such a, a grueling brutal album but after a while i was like man i was like which song is this like as it starts to kind of mesh together a little bit and uh but it was a great challenge, and it was a lot of fun. We've done the Chaos CD album from beginning to end, and that was great. But this was great to have this whole mixture of like everything from every aspect of Sepultura, and just really throwing it out there. And I think fans truly enjoyed that. You know, it was a longer set list. Um, you know, it was almost like two hours, and it was just like nonstop. They got to hear everything. You know. Now. Um at what stage is the new album out? Can we are we likely to to see a release for for this year? Well, right now we're we're going to be starting actually tomorrow. Uh, we're going to start uh, the actual writing process. So for the next few months, we're going to be going to the studio every day and recording and getting ideas and, and building the album. And then we plan on recording uh, sometime in the end of April. Uh, and uh, and hopefully the album will be done in fall, around October. So that's the tentative plan right now. Excellent. Well, we will hope to see the, the new album. When the album does come out, it'd be great if you guys can back over to Scotland uh, so we can see you again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always a bit, uh, uh, yeah, I- we'll definitely be doing full-on uh, world tour once it's out. Amazing. And a shout out to our mutual friend as well, Tanya O'Callaghan. A big thank you to her for, yes. for, for setting this thing up. Derek, listen, thank you very much for joining me today. Really, really appreciate you giving us an insight. Fascinating stuff. Uh, wish you continued success and I'll no doubt see you when you come over to Scotland, okay? Yeah, you're definitely invited, man. I'll make sure that you get out the list. <laughs> right. 100% sure. You enjoy the weather. I'll enjoy the pouring rain in Scotland right now, okay? All right. All right, man. Take care. A fantastic interview there. Extremely informative listening. Oh, yes, thank you. Thank you. And thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And I would like to thank Mr. Johann Sebastian Bach for inspiring many, 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 many generations of people. From the... F- from Johann Sebastian back to the Sex Pistols to WWE, it's unbelievable. This podcast, man, this pod. That's we- what you. That's what we're talking about, man. The whole thing. The whole shebang. Wait, this is a world podcast. Whole shebang. That's right. Nora, give me, what? give me the one of the highlights of the podcast for you. Hit me. Ever. Aye. Uh, we met through this podcast. We met through this podcast. You know what I'm saying? We did. Yeah, we did. We did a lot of cool stuff. 
Um, mm, 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 mm. I like we talk about science on this podcast. I like, uh, um, what else do I like about the podcast? Let's see. Um, there are sometimes it's fun when you just throw at me like these random requests and then I actually know them. That's really fun. Um, it's nice to, um, there have been some guests who in particular have been really cool, I think. Uh, I personally really liked Tommy Emanuel's interview. I really liked, um, who else did you have that was really amazing? I mean, besides everyone. Everyone. Um, uh, I'm struggling to think. Most of them haven't been that good, to be honest. The best ones have been... Um, the best part of the podcast is me talking. You know? Uh-huh. That's the best part of it. The guests, you know... Um, they're just there basically to um, garnish your... <laughs> they're, they're there as filler. They're there as just a kind of filler for something to have in between me talking. So I would say the best, the best guest has been me. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely. I mean, you're the all timer. Right. <laughs> right, I'm going to be serious now. Um, who's been amazing? Uh, as cliche as it sounds, who hasn't been brilliant? Khaki King uh, is. Oh yeah, that was cool. That incredibly was intelligent. Uh, John Gom, as you said, Tommy Emmanuel. Uh, I mentioned earlier when Chris Jericho asked me who I've liked on the podcast. Katie Tunstall has, has been really entertaining. Well, that was cool. Nathan East was really cool. Nathan East was amazing. Definity Rocks. Um, and loads of people that have, like Tanya, has been, is always great anytime she comes on. Uh, you're brilliant every week you're on. Mike Smith has been brilliant when he's been on. Oh, yeah! Hi, Mike. Mike's- Mike, how are you? Wait, I want to give a special thing for Mike. We're talking Mike. I'm sorry, is this okay? It's the 100th episode, so right, who okay. gives a shit? I'm sorry. Go for it. You can swear if you want. You've already said that person in the guy's office has got lots of, you know. Right, we're playing something for Mike Smith. Shout out to Mike Smith. And big shout out to Ron as well. It produces all this shit, man. Okay, Mike, this is for you. Awesome. What is that? Oh, uh, that is called, it's called, um, it had to be you. And I thought since we've got the Sex Pistols, we've got Bach, I thought maybe we should put some jazz in there. I don't know. Just an idea. I shared to make makes our pal, and let's, a quick, we were obviously, we were all in America together in the summer there, and we'll hopefully do the same again this year, right? Me, you, Mike, Tanya. Everybody that we we really liked That's was the dream team right there. It was the dream team. We were all we were all rocking it. Tanya and I rocking it. Rhythm section. You That's and the studio. Funny because you know what? 
Do you remember where we all met? Where we all were all together for the first time? Uh, Westlake. That's right. Yeah, yeah, in the studio. Uh huh. No, no, no. We did the rehearsal before that, though, eh? Rehearsal. What is a rehearsal? Exactly. Not remember we rehearsed. Yes. Yeah, you remember it now. Um, we rehearsed. But remember the first time, sorry everybody, we were just chit-chatting now, I hope this is, it's under the episode, who gives a shit. Um, do you remember when we did, uh, do you remember the first time that you and I met in, in Birdbank, remember? Yeah, yeah, i just come off a red-eye flight, uh, I hadn't slept at all, I'd been partying all night before, I was on tour with someone, and I, w- I meant to get up and take a shower, I slept through my alarm, so I went straight from um, my sweatpants onto the plane, and I got off the plane with my suitcase, I took a cab to your house. Well, I'll not say that that's incorrect, that it was my house, because it makes me sound cool, I've got a house in America, but it was a house I was staying in. It was Robin and Kev's place, remember? It was your house for that time, and I do remember that, and I was so tired, and I thought you were going to be this really professional straight-laced guy, I thought I was going to show up, and and with, you know, my, um, I wasn't as quite as put together, I was living the rock star life that weekend and I wasn't really quite as put together as I would have wanted to be, um, but I was on tour and things got a little out of hand. So anyway, I, I was going there and I was like, oh crap, I hope this guy Scott doesn't think I'm this huge idiot. And then I got there and uh, you were like the coolest guy, you were so relaxed. And um, I found out later that you'd been to jail three times. <laughs> And that you've robbed a convenience store, and then um, there are all these things about you that the listeners don't know. But I thought I, you know, I was I was really relieved when I met you. I thought I could be myself finally, and so I want to thank you for putting me at so much ease all these years, baby. I was relieved to be talking to you as well because we're criminal record like that. How I got into America, I don't think anybody will ever know. But um, we need actually we we did an interview. Uh, later that day, that was the first time you were on the podcast. So I interviewed you, and this is bef- long before we decided that you would be the co-host forevermore. Yeah. And um, we did the interview, and we've never actually put that interview out. No, I know that. Um, it's funny. I, I don't know why we've not put it out because it was decent. So we should maybe we should maybe dig that out of the archive. Maybe, yeah. Because you remember, I was asking you to do all this stupid. I'd met you like ten minutes, and I was asking you to do all this stupid shit in the violin. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Times have not changed. Yeah, years. it's just the same shit. A year and a half later, or whatever, it's just the same shit every week. We've not progressed in the first half an hour of his meeting in that place in Burbank. First you say this podcast has progressed a shitload, and then you say we haven't progressed at all. No, we're, just doing the, we're just doing the same shit, except we're doing it over Skype and not in person. That's true. Well, everybody, there you have it, okay? Thank you. For everything. Uh, this has been right in, in closing, right? Um this has been pretty I'll just say for anybody that's still listening, that still gives a shit of what we're saying here right now. Um this 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 genuinely has been brilliant because this has got us an opportunity to meet lots of different musicians. If it wasn't for doing this, I wouldn't know you, right? Because and we true. wouldn't we wouldn't have recorded. I wouldn't know any of my like favorite people in the world because I've met so many people through you. I mean, everybody you just mentioned. And then plus so many other people. I mean, like, I don't know. Scott, thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. 
Yeah, and it's it's obviously we're never one for being serious and sentimental in this thing, but I'm delighted that obviously um it's got me a chance to meet yourself. It's got me go straight to hell. Sorry. Yeah. Apart from you, I'm delighted that I've met so many different people are on it. Like all these all the guests that have been on it, I'm pretty much in touch with them all. Um and it's just building. It's a, it's a it's a mu- music industry is a place for building relationships, and we've done exactly that through this thing. So it's been amazing. And here's to a hundred more. Chris Jericho says he's going to be in episode two hundred, and no doubt he'll be on that. Um, and it's really cool. And once again, I've said it a couple of times now. A huge thanks to Ron North that produces this every week. He is a legend amongst legends, isn't he? A legend amongst legends. Yeah. Ron. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what legends you're alluding to when you say amongst legends, but for sure, Ron is a legend. That's definitely true. Because, he, he, like I said, he puts this shit together, he edits it. Anytime we make mistakes, he clears it all up. And we make mistakes every week because, like you said, you thought you were meeting this straight-laced professional. Uh, I and- make a mistake every time I open my mouth, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so anyway, we're babbling here. Thanks very much for listening to us. Uh, long live the talk music podcast with myself, Nora, Ron, everybody's involved. My name's on Century Birthday Podcast. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to each and every guest that's been on this thing, even the shit ones. And there's been a few. There's been a, there's been a there's been a few. No, and I we will name them all next week. <laughs> In alphabetical order, <laughs> yeah. so, that nobody, so that nobody feels um, offended. I'm gonna name one. I'm gonna mim- I'm gonna mimic one to you right now, and nobody else is gonna see it. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That person was awful. That person was awful. Didn't you just mouth my name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's very rude. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Jericho. Big thanks to Glenn Matlock. And big thanks to Derek Green from Sepultura. What a fantastic 100th episode. And we will see you guys next week for 101, baby. Room 101. <laughs> Podcast 101. One thing is guaranteed. Nora's going to be there. Mm. See you later, guys. Bye. Sky Cowie, you love me. You just don't know you love me.